I'm Roy Sharples. Welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you seeking inspiration? An industry expert looking for insights or are growing your career? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to provide access to insights and content from creators worldwide with inspirational conversations and storytelling about art, architecture, design, entrepreneurship, fashion, film, music, and pop culture. Rand Fishkin is co-founder and CEO of audience research software startup, Spark Toro. He's dedicated his professional life to helping people do better marketing through his writing, videos, speaking, and his books. Rand is the author of Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. Co-contributed to two books, Art of SEO and Inbound Marketing and SEO, and he's featured on many publications. Hello and welcome, Rand. What attracted and inspired you to become an entrepreneur in the first place? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm actually a little bit of an accidental entrepreneur, at least the first time. I dropped out of college in 2001 and started working with my mom, Jillian, who had been running a small business marketing consultancy for forever in the Seattle area. And I just wanted to build websites. So I was like, oh, I love designing websites and I like building them and it's really fun and the internet is cool. Um, so that's what I'm going to do. And then, you know, we sort of had our, our struggles and trials and tribulations trying to build that business. And eventually it came to this point where, you know, I started to do SEO because we couldn't afford to pay our SEO subcontractors and that, yeah, spiraled into this, this business that became, you know, Moz first as a consulting business and then as a software company. And when uh, the venture capital folks invested, they, they wanted me to be CEO. So that's kind of how I got started as an entrepreneur. And then with SparkToro, I... I think what I discovered my last few years at Moz, you know, I'd stepped down as, as CEO and was working at the company for a few years after is that I felt a significant need to prove myself. You know, I needed to prove that Moz wasn't a fluke and that I could do it again. And that, you know, maybe some of my board members were, were, uh, had made bad decisions about how to treat me. <laughs> and, and, um, and hence, I wanted to be an entrepreneur again. Well, you're certainly not one to rest in your laurels and are a role model for growth mindset by being mindful and selective in what you do in your entrepreneurial pursuits and being open-minded and progressive by pushing yourself to get out of your comfort zone and trying out new things and experimenting in new areas rather than standing still and milking the cash cow until it's dried out. What is your creative process in terms of how do you go about making the invisible visible by dreaming up ideas, developing them into concepts, and then bringing them to actualization? I am very driven, especially these days, by a combination of feasibility. <laughs> so what I think is possible yeah. to build and relatively straightforward to, you know, construct and launch. And also by what I personally want to see exist in the world. Um, and, and what I feel like I can 
effectively market to people. So, you know, I come from a marketing background, obviously, and um, I think that informs a lot of my my creativity. I, I think it also limits it in some ways, right? I do a lot of things um, before I ever launch a product or a service or or even a blog post um, to consider whether that thing that I'm producing has an audience who cares deeply about what I'm creating and who would be likely to share it and amplify it and um, help it reach more people. I think that's, um, I I think those inputs are something that, you know, a real artist almost wouldn't consider, you know, because their art is very pure and I have some respect and actually a lot of jealousy around that. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I, I have often wished that I could create things just because I thought they were amazing and should exist and not have to worry about whether, you know, how possible it is or how much time and budget it's going to take or who could build it or, um, you know, whether it's going to resonate with anyone, but me, I think, I think this is the beauty that, you know, that artists get to embrace and entrepreneurs don't at the same time, they're, there's benefits to having limitations. Yes. Right. It, it is, <laughs> it, it is absolutely the case, Roy, that um, when you put restrictions and caps on what's doable, you can sometimes get more interesting, almost more creative ideas sometimes. So yeah, you know, it's a love hate relationship. Yeah. Having constraints can drive more explicit scope and, being more clinical in your focus and committing to it by making sacrifices and investing the the long hours of effort by doing the work with persistence. And that's worth the price for success over the long term. Your other point around the viability of what you do. And I think that really is the, the most important thing as an entrepreneur is having a viable business with a clearly differentiated value proposition is priority number one. Knowing your industry and business and having an effective strategy with a clear value proposition that understands your audience and delivers a solution to what they actually need and get value from. The beauty of entrepreneurship is creating something that's never existed in the world before, something that you wanted to see exist that you feel proud of and that other people find valuable. That is just a, a wonderful feeling. And, you know, in some, in some ways it, uh, it almost doesn't matter how much money you make with it, as long as you sort of make enough to do well, um, you know, in your life and, and sort of support your life. Uh, that's, that's a phenomenal thing. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions that entrepreneurship is purely about, you know, driving for the most money possible. And I think, unfortunately, uh, especially the American media, particularly in technology, you know, the field that I'm in celebrates this idea of these, you know, billionaire entrepreneurs and makes them role models. But I, I could be honest, I, I think, Roy, that those people, despite all their accomplishments, I think the vast majority of them are less happy um, than I am. I think they're less happy than most people who, you know, 
make fresh pasta on the streets of Italy. I don't think that their lives are all that awesome. And, you know, the few people that I know who run public companies and, you know, have these incredible obligations, they're, yeah, their days are not filled with doing what they want to do. They're filled with doing what they have to do. Um, and I think they, their minds sort of shift to a focus on wealth and finance that is not not a happy place. There's no true love and heart. It's transactional and it's mirrored within the cultures they curate and the products and services they provide, which is about the transaction, making money purely and simply than making humanity and the world better. Their motivations, values and ethics are different from the socially conscious and purpose-led entrepreneur where you tend to hold yourself sincerely and accountable for your actions by having a social conscience and empathy for the environment by continuously managing innovation in a way that it powers the products you design, make and sell and the businesses you run. It feels very bifurcated to me, right? I think that there's... You know, they're, they're sort of this significant group of people who, as you say, are trying to build companies that benefit the world around them, that benefit their communities, that are not, you know, harmful and don't have all these negative externalities. And then there are people who, you know, um, intentionally embrace and, um, you know, purposefully ignore or downplay the, the negative impacts that their businesses have. I, I think in particular, a lot of the entrepreneurship and, you know, part of me almost wants to call it grifting around kind of blockchain companies and NFTs and cryptocurrency. Um, I I don't think it's true to say that every single, you know, business and and operator in that world is is trying to grift, but a, a huge percent are, and they are absolutely, um, yeah, ignoring the really negative ramifications that their that their businesses have on a lot of people. On the topic of digital marketing, we live in a consumer-led, instant gratified, celebrity culture that fuels the world. Everyone looks the same and everything is for sale. Social media, mobility and the internet dominate our daily lives, if, if we allow it to, of course, where people have an insatiable appetite to be engaged by and curiosity for authentic experiences and content. We have become increasingly driven by our primal need to be social, by our need for social recognition and celebration. Western society in particular has become more augmented by interactive digital content and information. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok and LinkedIn have become the fabric of our lives and part of our social routine. From your perspective, Rand, how should we best consider how we cut through the noise and communicate with our audience when they're being besieged with content? Social media is is dominating a lot of time spent online and time online is dominating a lot of free time, um, certainly for Americans. I would I would say that the the answer to the question about how do you reach the right audience with the right message at the right time in the right place is different for 
every different business. Yeah. Uh, and that, <laughs> you know, that the, the best answer in to all digital marketing questions is always, it depends. <laughs> and this is, this is of course one of those, right? So, you know, I would not tell a restaurateur and a software provider uh, that they should do marketing in the same places with similar messages um, in similar ways. I would tell them that the, the channels they choose, the tactics they engage in, um, their strategy for how to make people aware of what they provide and, and then, you know, get them into their sort of conversion funnel, which is a funny thing to say for a restaurant, but um, it exists. It's entirely different. So yeah. if you are a creator, this is, this is how I would think about your strategy for digital marketing, which is I would do audience research before you do anything else. I would talk to your customers and your potential customers and people in your field who influence your customers. And I would have conversations with them about, hey, what do you pay attention to? And, and where do you get your information? And how do you make decisions around this problem space? And talk to me about the problem itself and how you're solving it today and what's painful about your solutions and what you feel like is missing. And all, all those kinds of things that you would do for product research, you should be doing for marketing research as well. You, you want to understand those people at a core level, and then you want to get data at scale, right? So interviews and surveys are great. They can, they can give you a lot of you know, sort of individual data, but you also want to understand the field as a whole. And so you take those learnings that you have from talking to, I don't know, a dozen potential customers, and then you try and validate them statistically across the board. So you might say, oh, well, you know, these dozen people told me that they... Uh, whatever, listen to this podcast or subscribe yeah. to this email newsletter or uh, that they, you know, pay attention to this website, go to this conference, um, that the place that they start doing restaurant research is TripAdvisor or Yelp or Google Maps or whatever it is. And now you go try and get data at scale to say, okay, let, let's see if we, you know, maybe we would use similar web to go get a, a huge download of, you know, all these restaurant websites and where do they all get traffic from? And, oh, look at that. Okay, Google Maps is number one and TripAdvisor's number two and Yelp's number three. Okay, boom, I've got some of that statistical data to back it up. And, you know, maybe you do, you know, you try and figure out some podcasts and you might use something like SparkToro for that. And uh, my contention is that every different business has a different audience that they're serving, and your goal is to be in front of that audience through the sources where they pay attention to the problem, where they try and solve it. You want to be there early and often, but if you don't know what those are, or you don't know the messages that are going to resonate, you don't understand the problem from their perspective, you're not going to do marketing effectively. Right. So knowing your audience by determining what they are most likely to need from your, your product or service, and then building audience-specific narratives and themes and show up where your audience is and, and make the difference. So understand how your audience discovers a need and becomes aware of you through a search engine, word of mouth, website, testimonial, social post, podcast or, or blog piece, and then getting them to adopt your product or service by absorbing the content such as uh, product or service descriptions, reviews, Q&As, and then consuming the, the product or service. And then after that, the, the ongoing nurturing, retaining, and, and growing of your, your audience. Rand, what are the key skills needed 
to survive and thrive as an entrepreneur? It, it depends on what your goals are as an entrepreneur. Yeah. If you want to be someone who maximizes the raw financial gain that you personally achieve, I think that is a very different set of skills and inputs and mental models than if you are someone who wants to create a business that survives for a long time and you want to do beautifully at your craft and you want to have, you know, very happy customers and, uh, you know, a wonderful community around you. The, the, those two um, points are at opposite ends of the spectrum and and they require very different, you know, skills and inputs. So I can only speak to the one that that I play toward, which is, which is sort of, you know, how do I have a wonderful life and wonderful relationships yeah. with people around me and, and build a business that I hope can have an impact on a positive impact on, on the world, at least the world of, of marketing. Um, and that is, uh, I think you need a lot of self-awareness. I think you have to know what drives you. Um, and you need a lot of empathy, yeah. You need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of your customers, of your audience, of the sources of influence that reach that audience, of um, people who might have the problem that you are trying to solve. Um, you probably want to be able to be uh, empathetic to people who write about and talk about your problem space publicly and, and have influence there. Those those skills, right? That I know myself, I know how I work well, I know how I don't work well. I know the kind of team that I would do well with. I know the kind of people that will energize me and, you know, fit well with my skills and abilities and, and make up for the areas of weakness that I have. Um, you've got to be able to know those areas of weakness, right? That self-awareness is, is one side. And then the empathy for others is the other one. If you get those right, I, I think... Um, a lot of the rest falls into place. Upon reflection, Rand, what are your lessons learned in terms of the pitfalls to avoid and the keys to success that you can share with aspiring or existing entrepreneurs? One of, not all of the keys to success, um, but one of the keys to success is choosing to invest in areas where you have personal passion and interest because it, it, it is very tough to do well in a sector where you, that you don't personally care about, yeah. right? That, that you're not interested in and, you know, you exclusively are doing it for the money. That's, that's not to say some people don't have success there, but I, I would argue that having passion and interest and being personally excited about it, um, it is a wonderful thing, right? If you are reading articles late at night on your phone about this topic and you're, you know, tweeting to people about it and, and when you get into dinner conversations with your friends, you constantly want to bring it up. That's the kind of thing that you probably should uh, start your company product service in those types of spaces rather than something where you think, oh, well, looks like there's a lot of money floating around in that other field over there. Granted, you can, you know, you can find some overlap in those two things, but that would, that would be one uh, big piece. And then, and then I think you should intentionally design your business to be structured and to have the criteria for success that you 
most want to aim for. So that sounds like very obvious advice, but I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs, you know, um, especially in, in my field, but in many others, you know, will build their businesses with the idea that they're supposed to follow a set regiment of steps, you know, step one, then we have the idea and then I'm going to make a business plan for it. And I'm going to go try and find funding. And uh, based on what the, you know, funding is available and what the investors say, then I'm going to try and build the business to, you know, serve investors needs, which often, you know, at least if you're, if you're going the classic uh, venture route, which is, you know, a, a ton of entrepreneurship these days, that's um, very much a, you know, 99 businesses fail for everyone that succeeds and um, a very high growth rate is needed to prove, you know, to investors that you're, you're doing the right thing. And so you sort of get on this um, hamster wheel of having to raise more money every few years. I think that um, that default does not need to exist. And, and you can break the chains of how those structures are crafted and invent your own. Just as you're inventing a new product or a new service um, or you're competing in a sector, you can also invent the way that you want to build your business. Um, you can invent how many people you ever want to hire. You, you can choose to be a solo entrepreneur. You can choose to only ever use contractors. You can choose to be entirely remote. You can choose to uh, never learn to code and use no-code solutions to build a software product, even though you are not a software engineer. The, the, yeah. the number of um, opportunities and options available to an entrepreneur today is incredibly vast. And I'm, I'm a little bit saddened that so few so few of us break out of the chains of what we think we're supposed to do. And I'm guilty of this myself, especially with my first company. Tilton Forward, what's your vision for the future of entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, my my big goal with the impact that I hope to have on, on the world of entrepreneurship is to serve as an example to other founders and creators that you can build a business that follows a lot of the classic um, pathways of, of tech entrepreneurship, but that you don't need to be a growth at all costs business. You don't need to um, raise traditional kinds of venture. You can uh, build a business that is intentionally made to be profitable and long-term and long-lasting and serve its customers and team first before it serves its investors. Uh, and that, that can be a really beautiful way to design and, and fund and run a company. I'm, I'm also hoping that, uh, I don't know, Roy, if you've seen some of my blog posts or, or um, you know, social posts or conversations about chill work, but I'm, I'm also hoping to, amplify and exemplify this idea of chill work, which is essentially not optimizing for, you know, how many hours can I possibly put in? And, you know, um, let me, let me hustle and grind all the time. Uh, but rather how can I create a business that can be done in 20 hours of work a week and still be very successful because those 20 hours are high quality hours 
where I'm doing my best work and I'm working on the most important things instead of, you know, I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall 60 hours a yeah. week and, and hoping for something that sticks. So th- those are the changes that I'm trying to have on the entrepreneurial world. What, what the future looks like, I don't have a crystal ball, so I, I can't say. And I, and I don't have an ego large enough to think that my um, little contributions will, will become that future. But I hope, I hope that it opens up some other avenues for other people. Just how soon is the future? One thing for sure is the future is unwritten and everything is possible. Do you want to learn more about how to create without frontiers by unleashing your creative power? Then consider getting Creativity Without Frontiers, how to make the invisible visible by lighting the way into the future. It's available in print, digital and audio on all relevant book platforms. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate, and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.